Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, August 31st. We begin with a look at the life of former Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev, who passed away Tuesday at the age of 91. We discuss how the transformational leader will be remembered in history with Alexa Drashowicz, professor of history at Western University. Next, a recap of Tuesday night's UCP leadership debate, the last debate in the race to replace Premier Jason Kenney, which wraps up on October 6th. We get analysis from Lori Williams, political science professor from Mount Royal University. Then we hear about a unique program which promotes inclusivity in the workplace. It's called Pride at Work. We speak with Jade Pichette, director of the program, on how it works and for details on a workshop taking place this week in Calgary focusing on workplace inclusion. And finally, it's back and better than ever. We get a sneak peek at the 23rd annual Calgary International Film Festival, which kicks off on September 22nd. SIF Artistic Director Brian Owens joins us to reveal a few exciting titles moviegoers can check out during the 10-day festival. Mikhail Gorbachev, the man who helped bring the Cold War to an end, passed away yesterday at the age of 91. How will he be remembered? Joining us to talk about it is Alexa Drachovich, who is the professor of history at Western University. Mr. Gorbachev uh, visited Canada back in 1983, professor. Was he really, did he have a lot of influence in Canada or really can we remember him for what he did globally more than anything? Uh, oh, first, thank you for having me on. Um, and uh, I think mainly his, his legacy is going to be a lot of what he did globally, uh, that his sort of impact very much came from, at least here in the West, in helping bring about the end of the Cold War. Uh, beyond that, I think it really depends on what your perspective is and how you evaluate certain decisions and certain actions that Gorbachev made. You know, it, it's interesting, Alexa, in that I think that there are two Mikhail Gorbachevs. There's the Mikhail Gorbachev on the world stage, and there's the Mikhail Gorbachev at home that we know, and I'm not sure if the textbooks reflect this and if the kids these days are earning it, but very much so. I remember he was an international star, but maybe not a star in his home country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and very much so. Like uh, we, for, for those who sort of recall the uh, allure of Gorbachev at the time, it was called Gorbimania. And uh, there are a number of uh, examples when he traveled to East Germany just before the fall of the Berlin Wall. The, the East German people were chanting his name. And he was very popular outside of the Soviet Union as he rep- sort of represented this reforming impulse that maybe the Soviet Union could be something else. At home, he did uh, institute a number of political and economic reforms. However, he also very much wanted to maintain the Soviet system. So while he was implementing these reforms, a lot of the uh, sort of the results that we think of today, but the, the dissolution of the Soviet Union, that was an accident. He really wanted to maintain the Soviet Union. And this is even to the point where you see a number of actions that he takes. For example, he uh, oversaw repression in the Baltics and the Caucasus in Central Asia, all to sort of defend and maintain the Soviet Union. And plus, we can't talk about Gorbachev without talking about Chernobyl, and he oversaw that. So uh, it's this very mixed bag, depending on which perspective you use with him. Professor, you know, when we look at Russia today, the war in Ukraine even, is there Mm -hmm. maybe a sense that Gorbachev's work is being undone by President Putin and his actions? Uh, There, at least domestically in Russia, there is that sense that a lot of people viewed Gorbachev as an alternate path of a potentially liberalizing Russia. I think that's going a little bit too far, but he did represent uh, a path. He very much was a proponent of social democracy in Russia, and he even helped form the Social Democratic Party in the early 2000s. However, 
we have to sort of be careful because, for example, he defended uh, the Russian annexation of Crimea in 2014. Uh, he did still reflect some of those foreign policy impulses that we're seeing, uh, particularly here with regards to Putin. Um, for example, he was very significant in the last decade uh, talking about how the United States uh, needed to respect Russia a lot more. And that's become a key talking point for Russian propaganda today. Do you think it would have been a different result if Gorbachev were to have been empowered today in, in current times with the kind of open-mindedness of the younger set of, of Russians, perhaps? Uh, that's a great question. I, I, I don't know if he would have survived the 1990s in some ways in the sense that he was not very popular at home. Um, and even still, a recent one of the most recent polls that I was able to pull up uh, had him where uh, nearly 50% of the Russian population today still viewed him negatively. Um, and so I, I think it, it, in, in one sense, he represented an alternate path, one that could have seen, for example, Russia develop into uh, maybe something more social democratic. He also attempted to remodel the Soviet Union. The issue is, however, that he always was in many ways beholden to Marxism-Leninism. So I'm curious, it's sort of one of those big what-if questions of what could the Soviet Union have looked like um, had the reforms not essentially been so successful that people were willing to then uh, start to essentially be much more vocal in their dissidents, and which helps uh, lead to the end of the Soviet Union. Um, it's a great what if, um, but at the same time, those sort of forces that he helped put into motion are in part part of the reason why Russia is the way it is today. It's interesting the other world leaders really paying tribute when word came out that Gorbachev had passed away. They call him, a, you know, a man of vision, a, a rare leader. Was he sort of one of the first, you know, kind of world leaders who became a bit of a superstar? I, I think that's a fair assessment. And I think part, part of the other sort of thing that worked for him was he came at a time where the Cold War was still in everyone's mind during under Reagan, especially in the United States, uh, Thatcher and Britain. Uh, you had figures where the Cold War was still very much looming large, and he came in at a time and represented a new path there and a willingness to negotiate and essentially change how the world had been sort of viewing foreign policy at that time and in viewing the sort of the relationship between the Soviet Union and the United States. And so I think because of that, he is viewed very, very positively in the West. And this helped develop that celebrity. Uh, I've talked to colleagues who remember him coming to departmental talks or to they, they saw him speak in the United States. And there was that sort of celebrity that also surrounded him there. And I think that's why a lot of people in the West view him so positively, because he represented this specific moment and then these results that are usually viewed in a better light here. Do you think we could ever see another leader coming from Russia, present-day Russia, uh, with some kind of similar gravita or, you know, some kind of a legacy put forth by uh, Gorbachev, or has that sh ship sailed at this point? I, I, I'm always hesitant to say that ship has sailed. I think it's very hard at this moment to see uh, Russia for uh, Russia and sort of the Russian leadership for anything uh, outside of well, Putin at this moment. At this moment, um, and even people who are suggesting that should something happen to Putin, uh, there are many groups of Russian nationalists that might continue what Putin are doing or might go in different ways. It's just it's too hard to tell um, at this point, though. Um, to, sort of to, 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 in a weird way to answer your question is the Soviet Union gave birth to Stalin mm. and several decades later Gorbachev is the man in charge so 
it, it, it's one of those where any system can bring those figures that are willing to change the way things are done. And that's one of the sort of the key things that with Russia is at some point is there going to be a leader that will see Russia less as uh, sort of this nationalist nation that is trying to maintain its place in the world. And will they have a leader that might be willing to work, uh, for example, with the West and, and to be a leader that uh, won't be invading their neighboring mm-hmm. nature? So. Thank you so much for your time this morning and your perspective. Appreciate it, Professor. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Professor of History at Western University, Alexa Drejcevich. And uh, interesting perspectives, for sure, of, of a man who is so such a varied opinion on him, like he said, at home, but around the world. People viewed him as such a, a, a wonderful, great leader. And recognizable around the world. Yes. And, and was not... And that, a, a, the, yeah. the birthmark on his oh, forehead yeah, made him visually recognizable always, right? I was seeing what, what surprised me. I had never seen it. It was on social media. You can look it up if you want. Uh, after he, do, he moved on from, you know, a political life, he was actually in a Russian McDonald's commercial. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Looks looks like he's sitting with his grandson or something. So. Probably got Big Macs for life. Look Why wouldn't we you? Could, we could probably grab it, but uh, my Russian's not so good, so we wouldn't <laughs> understand it. Last night, UCP leadership hopefuls took aim at perceived frontrunner Danielle Smith in the last official debate leading up to the vote. Joining us with some insight in the race to replace Premier Jason Kenney is Laurie Williams, political science professor at Mount Royal University. Good morning to you, Laurie. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Sue. Great to be with you. Did anything stand out for you specifically during last night's debate, Laurie? There were a few things. Uh, I I thought this whole question of unity versus division and the fact that um, all of the candidates, except for Daniel Smith, disagreed with the Alberta Sovereignty Act in in some measure or another. And and the question of uh, how Daniel Smith can claim to represent and work with others when she is going ahead with something that the other candidates disagree with. I thought that was a a pretty pretty strong um, argument brought against her. Um, and then the, the, the claims of that the rise of the NDP was in part uh, because of Danielle Smith crossing the floor and strengthening um, the, the, uh, the Wild Rose candidates mm-hmm. and defeating the progressive conservatives. I thought also uh, the question of who can win the next election, who can lead uh, Albertans, in the next election, uh, who can lead all Albertans or a leader that all Albertans can vote for, as Rebecca Schultz put it, thought that was a pretty pretty significant blow. Uh, and Lele here said, saying instead of looking to lead, uh, we need to look at leading Canada. Um, I think all of those raised questions about Danielle Smith's uh, candidacy for the leadership. But I think, I think Travis Taves took a few um, hits as well. Um, and I, I thought it was quite interesting, not only that they were looking at his his uh, record saying, you know, yeah, he balanced the books, but on on the back of uh, these huge oil prices, um, this idea of, of uh, re-indexing um, income tax, then people say, well, what about things like age and senior benefits and child benefits and so forth? So I think they both took a, a lot of hits on their record um, and it it remains to be seen how that's going to affect them in the in the upcoming vote. Mm-hmm. Laurie, can we say there was a clear-cut, uh, quote-unquote, winner last night of, of the debate? No, I don't think there was a winner, but I, but I think the uh, the number of criticisms brought against, particularly Daniel Smith, but also to Sir, uh, Travis Taves, um, meant that 
a number of the other candidates landed blows and and that might actually even up the the race between Taves and, and Smith, mm. who appear to be at the front at this stage. I thought the other thing that was quite interesting was that Taves seemed to indicate that he would not remain in elected office if he loses the leadership, saying that he'll support the movement. But that sort of signals there may be really deep problems for unity if Danielle Smith uh, wins, and potentially if, if Travis Taves wins, perhaps a split on the right. You know, I thought it was also interesting, Laurie, last night that uh, some of the candidates asked people to make them their second choice. So why would that be? Well, that's exactly what happens in a ranked ballot. And and we look back to previous leadership races, whether federally or provincially. Um, the person who was in the lead on the first ballot is not as as often in the lead uh, in subsequent ballots. So those second and even third or subsequent choices can make a huge huge difference. And so you saw those who are really thinking they're contenders for the leadership being very nuanced in their criticism because they didn't want to alienate the supporters of other candidates, whereas folks like um, Leela here um, and uh, Rebecca, uh, sorry, Rajan Sani in particular, knowing they probably are in a position to win, were being much more forthright in, in their criticisms, much more direct, because they don't, didn't have to worry, even though they, they spoke of wanting people's first or second ballot. Um, they knew that the, that the votes for them were probably going to be going to other candidates, and so they were going against the candidates they don't support. Hmm. The final debate, 36 days till we know who will be the next leader of the UCP. Uh, what do we, you expect to see over the next uh, several weeks here? Well, I think heavy campaigning. We heard a little bit about it last night, people actually going out into communities and trying to persuade people to vote for them. It's possible that some who bought a membership from one candidate may have changed their mind since buying that membership. The debate last night might have gone some distance toward doing that. Um, but again, I think we're still going to be looking at a lot of people uh, trying to persuade people with respect to their their second choice and where that second choice is going to go. So if somebody like a Todd Lowen, uh, Lila here, or, or Rajan Sani um, are knocked off the ballot at some point down the, in the count, then um, where their second votes go will potentially determine who the next premier of the province is. Just to give you an example, people might remember that Gary Marr uh, was very near 48, 50%, I think he was at 48 or 6% um, in the first ballot in his leadership race, and he wound up losing the leadership because those second choices went overwhelmingly to um, to Alison Redford. Right. I, and I think it's important we, we point out, too, that this these are people who are voting here are card-carrying members of the UCP. This is not the province as a whole unless you hold yeah. that membership. And yeah. then we'll go to the ultimate vo- vote where, you know, the, the entire province will decide who the premier is right I mean there's there's still more to this oh absolutely and 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 that was one of the key themes last night that we saw is that it's not just about winning this leadership it's winning the next election and to the extent that people are going to be looking carefully at that next uh, of that next election and wondering who has the ability to win that next election um, that I think is a question that might influence people that argument I expect will continue over the coming days as people uh, think about not just their first choice but their second choice going to be an interesting uh, time ahead Mm -hmm. in a few weeks we appreciate your insight this morning Lori oh always a pleasure thank you that's Lori Williams political science professor at Mount Royal University
Curious if people were watching, watched any of the you just highlights even maybe, or, you know, are, is, your, is your vote solid, whether you're a member or not of the UCP card carrying, you know, is your vote solid on who you would like to see win this leadership vote, mm. this race? Do you know who it is? Are you still kind of on the fence? You're not really sure, or you've just decided, forget it. I'm throwing in the towel on the UCP. I'm going NDP. Yeah, or has anybody surprised you? Yeah. Has anybody, you, you, again, as Laurie mentioned, you may have bought a membership from one candidate, and if you're in the UCP world, and somebody else may have be, you know, garnered your attention. Oh, wow, look at this. Because, you know, the mudslinging aside, the fantastical headlines, mm. what do these people want to bring, not only to their party, but as a pre- next premier, to to the province. Workplaces should be safe and inclusive regardless of your race, your sexual orientation, your identification, or your beliefs. So how workplaces can foster a welcoming and inclusive environment is always a big question. Joining us to talk about it during this Pride Week is Jade Pichette, who is Director of Programs with Pride at Work Canada. Good morning to you, Jade. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. It's, uh, I'm very happy to be here. Okay, so super important topic because, you know, I think we, we've come a long way, still have a long way to go, but how do we be a little more aware and just a little more helpful in letting people feel like they are included, like helping us to be more inclusive? Yeah, I mean, we all feel this feeling of, of moments where we don't feel like we belong, where we don't feel like we're included. Um, for many, many different reasons, and, and everybody should feel that sense um, at work. Um, and But sometimes I think that we get very focused on the individual actions, which are important. Um, you know, each of us has a little role to play in how we work with one another, how we emphasize with one another. Um, but at the end of the day, it's about the broader structures, and it's about leadership, and it's about how, what policies, practices, um, that we have in place. So do we have inclusive uh, policies? Do we actually act on those policies? Um, do we make sure that there is space for discussion, for engagement, um, and for people to actually share how they are feeling at work so that uh, their employer is able to make those changes? Jade, I would think that, you know, our whole outlook when it comes to work and the office and the structure of being in office we have changed over the past, you know, 30 months or so. So I'm wondering if an organization like yours looks at this change, looks at this return in a different light as perhaps a reset when it comes to looking at inclusion in the workplace. It's definitely been on the agenda in terms of being uh, more of a discussion with, uh, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, with more discussions around pride, um, with discussions around uh, accessibility and COVID and and. Uh, how do we manage to keep everybody safe? So these discussions definitely are more on the agenda than they were uh, pre-pandemic. Uh, uh, however, that some of the things that we um, can really note with that is that, uh, you know, as people are kind of going back to the office and getting back into uh, connecting with people, which, you know, happy pride, I'm very happy to be doing that myself. Um, you know, for some people, and especially folks in uh uh, two-spirit, lesbian, gay, bi, trans, queer, intersex, and uh, asexual communities, um, there has been a lot of evidence that sometimes we've actually found it safer and had our productivity go up at home um, because we didn't necessarily feel as safe at work. That's not true for everybody because sometimes people felt like they got outed at home um, uh, without their consent. 
Um, and then sometimes some people went into and worked from uh, worked remotely in a place that wasn't necessarily safe and their workplace was the one that was. So it, it can be a real challenge what people are feeling in terms of where that is. But I think the important thing for inclusion's sake is making sure that people have options. So do we have options for people that want to go into the office and, you know, create that space and make sure that we have um, an inclusive space as people are coming back and, and create um, those opportunities? Um, and do we also still have some of those opportunities for those who can um, work remotely? Because, of course, in many industries, you just can't. And, and mm -hmm. so many people have worked through this pandemic in person um, uh, with uh, such impressive uh, care and and. Uh, um, and many other challenging mm -hmm. feelings as well, though. Jade, I can say that, you know, in 30 years in this radio industry, this is my very first job where I was actually allowed to be out on air yeah. openly. So I get what it, it's hard for people to either, you know, maybe their bosses or, you know, the, the people they work with don't make it comfortable for them or they just don't feel ready to do that. But you've got a big event coming up tomorrow that maybe will help sort of both sides of this, right? Yeah, so uh, we're very excited for our Calgary Pro Pride event. So we're excited to be back. We've been doing Calgary Pro Pride for many, many years, but took a bit of a break. Um, and so each year we bring together uh, professionals because um, uh, we work with over 250 different large employers, uh, but also job seekers, members of the community to really kind of have these discussions um, about uh, how do we make uh, our workplaces inclusive and in particular, this time, we're looking at the next generation. So um, we know that workplaces have changed. We know that uh, for a lot of um, the uh, Generation Z and, and who's coming after, uh, their workplaces and their experience with work is different. Um, and it's something that we need to recognize. And so how do we support them um, and make sure that they feel safe as they're going into the workplace and that uh, we create an environment where they're able to not just survive, but actively thrive. Um, so that will be the focus tomorrow night, uh, starting at uh, 5.30 at the, at the uh, uh, Calgary Library. Um, and it's open event. Uh, we're, we're welcome to the public, although people can still register online um, uh, via live stream or for the in-person. Um, and if you're a common person, come say hi. I'd love to connect with folks directly and uh, really look at, you know, how can we make these workplaces where uh, also for employers, you're able to get the best talent because we know about a third of Gen Z is uh, uh, upwards of a third is 2S LGBTQIA+. Interesting uh, stat and uh, good work that you do. We'll perhaps see you out and about this weekend. In the meantime, we're going to direct people to learn more about what you do at prideatwork.ca. Thanks, Jade. Wonderful. Happy Pride. Happy Pride. Jade Pichette, Director of Programs with Pride at Work Canada. That is a track called Carry It On by Buffy St. Marie. The 2022 SIF Calgary International, International Film Festival lineup includes a film focusing on Buffy St. Marie. And joining us with a little sneak peek of the full 2022 SIF lineup is Brian Owens, SIF Artistic Director. Good morning to you, Brian. Thanks for being with us. Uh, good morning, Sue. How are you? Uh, excellent. Thank you. Very excited about this. Full lineup comes out at 10 a.m. this morning, but you've got a little uh, insight you want to share with us uh, before we get to that. It's going to be a wonderful festival back in full force, I guess, after the pandemic, right? 
Yeah, we're going to be at full capacity theaters, so we want to make sure that everybody knows and is prepared for that. We'll still have a few things that people can watch at home, but not nearly the same uh, quantity that it used to be. But yeah, along with uh, Buffy St. Marie Carry It On, which we're really excited about, I've got three titles for you that we'll be announcing at 10 o'clock, so uh, the audience gets the first peek at those three. All right, might not be able to release, uh, or sorry, mention all of the titles, but how many different films, how many uh, different productions can we watch over the next handful of days? Yeah, so uh, in total, we have 117 feature films and right around 100 short films, so uh, about 217 to 220 movies. There's still a couple that might get announced in the next week or so. Brian, I think, you know, a lot of people, when you hear oh, the film festival, you think, oh, fall, 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 and it's not anything interesting <laughs> that I, I care about. But it's not like that, is it? No, it's really accessible, and actually one of the three titles uh, that uh, I've got for you today is a Canadian-U.S. co-production called Alice Darling. Uh, and it stars uh, Anna Kendrick, um, the Oscar nominee and then star of Pitch Perfect. Um, and in that, she plays a young woman who goes on a hiking trip with uh, her girlfriends. And through a series of texts and phone calls, her girlfriends begin to suspect that she's fallen into an abusive relationship and they try to help her out of it. It's a really interesting, uh, dramatic thriller that is the type of thing that's going to end up being released in theaters later, but uh, our audience is going to get that very first peek. I know that uh, those who like it like it a lot. Uh, they want to get out and check out the films. How does it work? Do I Can I go see one movie, or do you make it you know, economical and deal if I want to see a whole bunch? Oh, you have the option of coming to a single film, so let's say your cousin is, a, is an extra in a movie and you want to go see that, you can certainly join us for the one. We also sell 20 ticket bundles. So if you want to go the, the run the marathon with us and see as many as you can, uh, those will knock the prices down for you to make those big purchases. It's an exciting time. Uh, the whole thing is underway till October 2nd. So movies and so much more. Full lineup comes later today, but I know people are pretty excited, Brian. Uh, you guys must be pretty pumped to come back in you know, full force again. Oh, yeah. No, we're so excited. And a couple of the titles that we wanted to share today. One, if there's any uh, space nerds out there, because I'm one of them, so I can say space nerd. Uh, we've got a great documentary called Good Night Oppie about the Mars Opportunity Rover uh, and the scientists that uh, worked to keep her going for what was supposed to be a 90-day mission that turned into a 15-year mission. Uh, it's one of those documentaries that even though you know the outcome to the story, it still feels like suspenseful and exciting and just takes you right along with the ride. And the special effects are actually done by Lucasfilm and Industrial Light mm. and Magic. So it's a gorgeous, gorgeous space documentary. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's exciting to share movies like that. And uh, the last one that I wanted to drop is we also have the winner of the Palme d'Or from this past uh, Cannes Film Festival, a Triangle of Sadness from director uh, Ruben Uslan. Uh, he was also at the festival with films in 2014, uh, Force Majeure, and 2017, The Square. So we're super excited about that. This is fantastic. People should check it out. Don't have the wrong idea. Open your mind. Get in there and see something new. 23rd year for the Calgary International Film Festival. We'll send people to siffcalgary.ca. That's C-I-F-F calgary.ca. Thank you, Brian. Thank you very much, Sue and Andy. Appreciate it. Brian Owens is the SIF Artistic Director.